when I am like screaming from the rooftops, like it doesn't have to be this way. These applications don't believe in applications. Don't believe in lotteries. Fight for home growth. Fight for small. Like it's because that's where I'm coming from and watching the way this has evolved. It does. It pulls the wind out of my sails and, and it's hard to get on phone calls with idealistic entrepreneurs that I'm hope, trying to help when I don't see opportunity anymore in so many places and to be on phone calls with people and tell them that the best thing they can maybe do is move to another state to actually start their edibles brand. They don't want to move. They live in New York. They live here. They want to start this business with their family and their neighbors and create a product for their community. Yeah. So my point is, is that as I've watched it evolve, there's just been so many things that I saw it differently. You're listening to To Be Blunt, the podcast for cannabis marketers, where your host Shada Taravi and her guests are trailblazing the path to marketing, educating, and professionalizing cannabis. Light one up and listen up. Here's your host, Shada Taravi. Hello, and welcome back to the To Be Blunt podcast. I'm your host, Shada Tarabi, cannabis business owner and brand marketer. And I'm so excited for today's guest. I cannot believe it took me this long, but we're here now, and I'm thrilled to share that I'm sitting down with the Jane West. Jane is someone to me who has excelled at building a personal brand. She's an entrepreneur, she's an investor, she's a change maker, she's an amplifier, she's also a mom and the founder of Women Grow, an organization that she founded in 2014 to focus on female leadership in the cannabis industry. She's also an advocate and in true to-be-blunt fashion, we get into it today on the podcast. From the disparities that Jane has witnessed herself as she watched Colorado go online, to now watching the rest of the United States open up opportunity, but opportunity for who? I have been so inspired by Jane's advocacy and activism. She really calls it like she sees it. And I can relate to that 100% because sometimes you can't unsee or unhear something and injustice is happening and you have to stand up. You have to say something in the hopes of making it better. And I believe that's what Jane is all about. And she's also just a badass. I mean, she used to throw cannabis consumption events with the Denver Symphony Orchestra. And if that isn't next level cannabis marketing and community, building, well, I don't know what is. We have so much to learn from Jane, from her journey to the responsibility she's taken on and ultimately to the opportunity that lies ahead for all of us as this industry unfolds. It's why I'm so honored and thrilled to welcome Jane to the show. So y'all know the drill. It's time to light one up and listen up. Hi, my name is Jane West. I've been in the cannabis industry for eight years. We are now distributed in over 300 dispensaries across North America And I also have a line of glassware, dugouts, and accessories for cannabis that are distributed worldwide. First, I should talk a little bit about just my background. So I was born and raised in Wisconsin. I went to undergrad at the University of Wisconsin. Then I moved to New York City, where I worked for non-governmental organizations in the UN, UNDP. I was working on programs with refugees in Afghanistan and working in New York City on 9-11. And I loved my job and I loved what I was doing. But following in the aftermath of 9-11, my work was all like the entire department was just ended. It's interesting because that was the only other time in my life that like things stopped in the way that they stopped during the pandemic. Like all of a sudden, one day, everything was completely different. And so six months after 9-11, I left New York. I moved to Colorado and I started getting my master's degree in social work. And so... I spent eight years working with nonprofits, working with high school students and doing other things. I had two sons living here in Denver, Colorado, and it wasn't until I was 38 years old that I even thought about cannabis or the cannabis industry or anything like that at all. And that's really the year that in 2014, that my story in cannabis begins. So Colorado had just legalized and we knew that on January 1st, these there, at that time, there were about 25. There's 25 dispensary doors were going to open to just people coming in and buying cannabis. 
And both my kids had just started school full time. And I have always loved cannabis and people who know me know that about me. And I'm not like, I've been a proud cannabis consumer, maybe not so much to my work life, but definitely in my personal life. So I wanted to start some type of cannabis events. I'd done huge events within my social work career. I, I produced events for both of Obama's inaugurations where we actually rented museums on the National Mall and staged from these museums the morning of the inaugurations. So like having a small gathering at an art gallery is something that's like a fun passion project for me. That's what I was starting. I was starting a fun little passion project, not a business. And I definitely to be clear, did not think of myself as an entrepreneur or a business person, or I mean, definitely an activist I was, but I decided that I wanted to start this, an event where you, now that if people can just go and buy amazing cannabis products, I'd seen some of the products coming out in the, like the candy bars and how they'd be divided perfectly in the, all the different, and I was like, wow, this is, this is really going to work. We, I should do something to involve myself in the cannabis sector. And so what I was doing was take was what a lot of people are doing now. I'm taking what I'd spend all this time doing, producing big events and going to produce events that are cannabis friendly. So I started Edible Events Company and that was really the moment that Jane West was born because I needed to purchase a, a burner phone and a laptop in order to start the company and, and be able to start. Cause I, I started kind of doing it on my work laptop and I got the, all these air, you know, all these like warning things coming up about the pages I'm not allowed to go to. I was like, okay, I got to get my own little laptop for this. And so as I opened that laptop, it was like, what is your name? And I was like, okay, I shouldn't even type my real name into here. Like I, this should be, and, and, you know, if I sound, you know, fearful you know, today in so many states, people should be this afraid still of having cannabis in their homes. And at that time, at the dawn, it was like there was so much going on and, and there was a lot of fear among a lot of people in the sector here. So I was like, what is my name? And I couldn't think of it that night. So I spent the morning really, really thinking about it. Like, how am I going to approach this? Like, I'm starting something new within myself and this passion project and how am I going to define this? What is going to define me? And what, what is my brand? And what am I bringing to my life that's new? And I looked into a lot of different names. I had a big sheet of all these different ideas. I definitely wanted something short with like just two syllables. And I came up first with like Mary Jane West. And now I'm not looking back. I'm like, whoa, that is so obvious. That I would not, right? And I actually went to one networking event saying my name was Mary and, and it felt Catholic and strange. And so I was like, no, I like Jane West. Then I actually looked up the name Mary Jane West and learned uh, that Mae West, who is really like very underappreciated for her, the boundaries she pushed as an actress in Hollywood in the fifties and sixties, and then becoming a director and then becoming an investor and her born name was Mary Jane West. And I was like, that's a sign. That's it. It's Jane West. So, yep. So that's how it was born in this same office that I'm standing in right now. And so I started producing the events and they got a lot of attention, especially because at the time after there were news crews everywhere, Al Jazeera, like CNN, all the people, all the most important people. And after you take a few pictures of one of the dispensaries and maybe get in a grow, there's not a lot footage to shoot. And so people wanted to come to this event. And that very first event, the end of Prohibition, January 4th, 2014, there were so many news people. And it was wonderful. Like we were in this beautiful art gallery and all my, my events had food and music and art. Yeah. And there was people, and it was just really showing this other side of the cannabis sector. There's many sides. I don't, everyone is welcome here. Cannabis is for everyone, but I wasn't finding the type of events that I wanted to attend on a Friday or Saturday night. And so that's what I was creating. And so that's how edible events company started. And the first time I typed in the Jane West name. I think that is so cool and certainly inspiring. We were talking before we were recording just about the opportunity that I think the cannabis industry entices people with like it is it's just this green rush it's big open it's new it's wide open but how do you actually enter the market and create this opportunity for yourself is sometimes the difference of you know succeeding or failing and so being able to step into this uncomfortability 
but also kind of like find excitement and how you're going to use your voice to, yeah, exactly. Make it yours and like have this voice. And so I would love to learn a little bit more too. I mean, coming from Colorado, when things were transitioning into the legal space, what has been your experience like 2014 to like 2022? (laughs) If you can, you know, culminate all those years. I think the best way to answer this question is to talk a little bit about social use because when it was being legalized in 2014, the idea that we would be sitting here this long later with this many states legalized and most Americans having access to some legal form of of regulated cannabis and not have a place where we can all go together and do this is like, I would be like, wait, how could that be? If yeah, if you would have told me that in 2014, like that's impossible. Now, I, I, I mean, that goes into the story because, you know, the first event went off very well. We, I had people from the city come. I had insurance. I wanted to make this professional. But, you know, I learned a lot from that very first event. It was harder than I thought it was going to be. It was so much work. And I, I did have, you know, two small kids and wanted to be home with them too. This was just, like I said, a passion project. It was something I was just doing for fun and wanted to basically break even. And so after that first event, I was like, wow, this is really popular and there's a lot of potential here, but I'm in over my head. Like I don't have the capability or capacity to do this whole new thing right now. And I'm not an entrepreneur. How am I going to do this? I thought that cannabis companies would be able to sponsor these events. And that would be like, you know, how I would maybe someday get to some point, but this is just like a fun thing. So a month later, some of the footage from that party was actually used on the five o'clock evening news with Brian Williams, national news. As a result of that, and my like me being in the piece, I was asked to leave my job the next day. I mean, I absolutely did not think that was going to happen. And I love my job. (laughs) And That was really the most pivotal moment because I was planning on just doing something that was kind of fun and additive to my life. And instead I like completely pulled the rug out from under myself and was left there, like not knowing what to do. And as most people know, one month later, even though I had formed this partnership with the Colorado Symphony Orchestra and we had events at Red Rocks and even though all these very positive social cues were lining up saying social use people want to come out and consume cannabis legalization they sent a SWAT team to one of my events they criminalized all of us that had held held events this was exactly eight years ago because it was 420 2014 that the SWAT team showed up at a small female-owned bakery where women were like painting pots outside yeah and busted us and so then i had criminal misdemeanor charges and that was the end of the event and that was their goal to tell people you cannot this social use is not a thing and that was you know the next big pivotal moment of like okay well now everything i even started doing just three months ago isn't even legal and i'm a criminal actually getting criminal misdemeanor charges for something related to cannabis and then what i've had to do differently in my life about that with like credit checks, business starting. I mean, I'm raising money on an SEC and federal regulated site. Like it gave me such a key sense of like, it's not just the people who are in prison for this drug. If you're affected because of legal issues related to cannabis, it goes right down to like your ability to get financial aid. And so over the long run, it really like helped me immediately get a better sense and a better trajectory of what I want to do and why. The two things that I would most be shocked by if in 2014 that hadn't happened yet by 2022 was how many people are still in jail, incarcerated, and currently this day having like significant issues in their lives related to cannabis. And the fact that it's not, there are not licensed establishments where you can go consume cannabis or even yoga studios or coffee shops. Those would be the two things that I'd be like, wow, I'm so impressed that billions and billions of dollars of cannabis have been sold. And I can't comprehend how these two things haven't happened yet. Yeah, it's pretty astonishing. I've not been charged criminally with anything related to cannabis, but just on a personal level, you know, being a business owner, having your name on the documents and trying to go after things. I have been kicked off PayPal, which is no surprise. I'm here. I learned I don't think I can transact Target online. They won't tell me why. They just will literally cancel every online order. And I'm like, all I buy from you are yoga pants. Like, what the fuck? Why can't I just shop with you? And then I wanted to set up a Stripe account to do 
podcast things that are cannabis related, but I'm not selling cannabis. And Stripe sent me a letter saying, we're so sorry, we, we cannot, you know, support you and transact your business on our platform. And it's, it is, it's shocking. I mean, obviously, those are more on the business side, but I agree with you on the social and criminal side of how cannabis has become so popular and yet so neglected in conversations when it comes to making it actually accessible to everybody and also taking care of everybody who's been affected by it. Knowing you have a background coming from this activism side, but also supporting social issues side, that transferring into cannabis, it's obviously a very, very overused word, not to diminish the word, but it is, we talk about it at nauseum, but yet there is no equity in the industry presently. I'm curious how you transitioned into this activism role and what has been kind of like the biggest motivator for you to like speak up and use your voice. Because I think that's something that I really observed about you is you say things that quite frankly, I'm sure a lot of people equally want to say, I know some of the things I've heard you say, I'm like, Oh my God, I can't believe she said that. I agree with that, but it's a hard conversation to have. And so when you step into this role of being an activism to, or activists going into helping make an impact on behalf of multiple other people beyond yourself, it's obviously implicating your own personal brand that you've been equally building alongside. So it's a very hand in hand, but also double-edged sword kind of observation from my perspective. And so I'm just curious what that has been like leaning into these uncomfortable conversations and mm-hmm. actually using your voice to help shape some of this mess that as we encroach legalization, we are stepping ourselves further and further you know, into, unfortunately. Obviously, having constituents and speaking up for people and fighting for what I think is right is was, you know, something that was intrinsic in the work that I did previously. I'll be honest, I wish I didn't have to speak up so much. Like, I wish I could not necessarily be the little like be buzzing around. But I've seen this from the beginning, or at least not even the beginning, honestly, because that's diminishing, like, because the medical market and what happened in, in California. Right, legacy, and, exactly. Right, like, just. I mean, the beginning of the commercialization yes, and and ownership, because before then, if you owned it, you're going to jail. So now all of a sudden something happened, who gets to own all of this and how and why is suddenly a thing. And, you know, and so I think one of the things that I've learned over time is that, you know, people associate legalization with freedom. It's like, oh my God, we get to do this and we get to do that. And in reality, what's happened is legalization is a lot more regulation and taxation and rules and limiting, limiting opportunity, limiting access, limit like, and I know what I'm saying is true because the medical patients that were the ones standing at those Capitol buildings, convincing legislators of these first key steps to getting where we are today, they can't get the medication they need for a reasonable price. And it's medication that is derived from a plant that they could grow in their own backyard if legally allowed. And that's stunning to me that that can't happen. I guess this is a good way to like pivot into like why I speak up. If, you know, after standing alongside a lot of these individuals back back at the dawn of, you know, the commercialization of this and then standing here today and seeing they can't even get the RSO oils or other things they need, there's obviously something wrong that has to be talked about and, but no one's talking about it, or at least it doesn't sound like that to me. The rhetoric that I've observed change over time is one of the things that is very personal because it's what you hear and what you remember and how, and also fueled by how you think the sector should look and what you were thinking. And I definitely was very naive in terms of how the world works when I, when all this started in 2014, because here in Colorado, Amendment 64, you allows for this Department of Med that you can just go to and get a license and try to play in this game. And so for the most part, accessibility to licensing was is not a problem in this state. And so that is the framework for legalizing cannabis that I thought was going to, I thought, how could it possibly get more restrictive? We're the ones just starting it here, right? Well, and that was the unending idealism that fueled me that and Durban poison 
to like all of founding women grow. I was like, my friend has a dispensary and my friend has a bakery and my friend has a lab. And this woman is making a granola and it's amazing. And I'm on it right now. But seriously, the point is like, like I was so concerned that women's outdated, uneducated stereotypes about cannabis were going to prevent them from starting businesses like this that I could see were doing well and thriving. And it, and at the very least, even if they have all the same problems other businesses have and issues, these women owned their businesses. They were making the decisions every day about what happens next and who they work with and how this is going to happen. And I had never seen that before. Never before, even after working in New York for so long, had I all of a sudden been in the middle of a mix of like six completely different businesses that are all 100% women-owned. And so that really was the main motivation for starting to grow. That and the fact that women from all over the world were like contacting me constantly. And so I just want to point that out because when I am like screaming from the rooftops, like it doesn't have to be this way. These applications, don't believe in applications. Don't believe in lotteries. Fight for home growth. Fight for small. Like it's because that's where I'm coming from and watching the way this has evolved is, has just been, it it does, it it pulls the wind out of my sails and, and it's hard to get on phone calls with idealistic entrepreneurs that I'm trying to help when I don't see opportunity anymore in so many places and to be on phone calls with people and tell them that the best thing they can maybe do is move to another state to actually start their edibles brand. They don't want to move. They live in New York. They live here. Like they want to start this business with their family and their neighbors and create a product for their community. My point is is that as I've watched it evolve, there's just been so many things that I saw it going differently. And the way I saw it going was better for everyone. Patients, consumers, (laughs) people, citizens, the public health system. And so that's where so much that motivation comes from. The first four years, it was optimism and excitement and also being fueled by women. Like you've hosted on your podcast, many of the women that I know, I'd sat with Lauren in 2015 in my house with like a bunch of business cards I got and was like, Laura of Kush cards. Elizabeth Hogan is one of my best friends in the whole world. And I love the Willie Nelson team. So like you've talked to a lot of these individuals my point was, I just started thinking about Elizabeth Hogan and Lauren now. <laughs> I love them. They're wonderful. <laughs> but seeing the um, excitement that these women are involved and making impact in an industry that is, you know, for every woman that you see succeed, there's probably like 10, 20, 50 that they're just, they're not going to survive. And they have those dreams. Like you're saying, they're just, they want to stay in their city. Yes. They want to be a part of their community. They want to make products or make events or be a connector because they love this plant and they are not aware of the realities of what it has been like progressing through right legalization. And to your point, the commercialization of cannabis. Yeah. The first four years was fueled by idealism and dreams and like, what could this possibly be? And meeting those women because they come into my life and like revive me of, of energy. You know, the reality is the past four years, a lot of that passion is coming from anger and frustration and trying to amplify the voices of the most angry and most frustrated people around here, which are the individuals simply trying to have the right to also grow this plant and sell it. And so that's really where like a lot of my energy comes from. It is very heartbreaking. I'm listening to you say these things and I feel it so much because I'm living it, right? I'm in a state like Texas that has not made it welcoming for us to consume, to do business There are other implications of being in this industry at a federal level. But when you do distill it down into your local community, I've had those conversations. I've had the thought of, well, if I want to work in, you know, cannabis, I probably have to leave my state to execute that. And then hemp legalized. And it's like, okay, well, now I have an opportunity in my state, but Mm -hmm. I don't really because they're constantly throwing regulation as you inch towards medical and eventually recreation. I personally believe Texas is going to be a limited licensure state. And Mm -hmm. I I just, I share the same pain of, I was very opportunistic getting in the industry and I'm about to come on my fourth year on that cusp, right? Of the excitement transitioning into the reality. And I think that's just where I always try to come with this podcast. And I appreciate you sharing so openly about your experiences because 
One, I love sharing these unique stories. We all come from different walks of life. We take different steps. We have different passions, strengths, ambitions, goals, but you need to be rooted in reality. When you go to get a license, what does that look like? It's not, oh, I want to be in cannabis. It's now I have to actually put pen to paper. We saw so many people in Texas go get hemp licenses because they wanted to grow in this, you know, green rush excitement. And, and I love that, but then, you know, the shoe drops and it's, well, where are you going to sell your products? And oh, by the way, Texas is in the middle of trying to make smokables illegal. So the plant that you love to grow, well, you can't do what you thought you were going to do with it. So it's turned into this very weird. I try not to be angry, kind of like, you know, you're expressing, right? I try not to be angry. I try not to be, and this is speaking for myself. I try not to be negative. But I, I have to remind myself, we have to be realistic with how we are progressing yep. through things and use our voice to speak up. So I do appreciate you speaking up as much as you do, being on this podcast, being a woman to look up to. And, you know, I can imagine that you probably have gone through a lot of shit because of using your voice, <laughs> right? But it's hopefully the good outweighs the bad and navigating through that to ultimately make an impact in this industry that you know, you had really good intentions of, of getting into. So I'm curious because I've seen it pop up in a couple of interviews and Mm -hmm. I don't want to assume that it's a positive thing, but in the sense of, you know, normalizing cannabis, especially being a woman in cannabis and you mentioned woman grow, I definitely want to get into that, but there's a lot of quotes of you being called the Martha Stewart of cannabis. (laughs) Oh God. (laughs) I never, I never said that. No, not you. I've not seen you call yourself that, but other people make that, you know, that title. And I'm curious, do you think that that helps normalize cannabis? Do you step into that expression? Do you think that it hinders the industry? Because, you know, to me, it's in the same vein of we're going towards legalization and you're getting all these celebrities and big personalities and multi-state operators and they care because there's money involved in it. But at the same time, it's like, you really do just want the soccer mom to feel comfortable. Like, Hey, you know, have your rosé, but also it is okay to grab your gummy or your bong. I can see it going two ways. I'm just curious. You're living it. What is that like for you? Well, you just brought up definitely a very specific debate that is repeating and ongoing at my company because at the beginning, exactly what you said, they started calling me the Martha Stewart of cannabis. And I was, I remember the first time I read it, I was like, we should call them and tell them to change it. Like, don't do that. Because for a whole bunch of reasons, especially like the monikers that are put on women to try to like make them something that you've already seen, like it's a lot. And so stereotype them. Yes. and, And just pigeonhole, like, I am not anything like Martha Stewart. And and also she doesn't make products in the manner that I, either way, either way. (laughs) There were a lot of reasons it struck a chord with me that I was like, no, we're never, you know, let's do it. And then my PR engine at the time, she spoke from the other side that you were saying that like, no, it's great that just the word Martha Stewart, and this is before she threw her in the ring, Martha Stewart and cannabis are in the same conversation. That's a good thing. Like that's an important. And so I understood that. And she's like, don't you want more reporters to read that in Forbes and in Inc, they're calling you this, like that's interesting to them. And then, and then also she challenged me, like, what would you have liked them to say? And so I was like, I am Hunter S Thompson's crate and barrel. I don't know. Like, why are we doing this? So I, I did dive in being like, okay, I understand and there's a reason in order to digest, have this more better digest in American society, especially with women, to be able to like help define things. But yeah, I mean, then Martha Stewart started her own cannabis brand. And in that moment, I actually was like, oh, this would be cool if she smoked. But unfortunately, despite her advertisements with lighters, yeah. she like her verbally and in her interview, I mean, she's got these contracts in the US. There's no way. That's the part that gets me is that if she actually did consume and not just like it's the huge deal and she does it one time and inhales once and it gets right. I mean like if she's literally just saying hey millions of women use cannabis every day in smokable form and it help, makes their lives better I'm not one of them but there's nothing wrong with that you know and but that's just not the messaging coming out of that brand so either way the point is it's a really great question you ask and I decided to dive in and, and try to build something so big that someday people say, well, I'm the Jane West of yes. something else. So we'll see. 
You're absolutely doing it. And I appreciate that that response, right? Not that there's a right or a wrong way to approach it, but I think that's my observation that I see with the industry. It's that twofold, right? It's we're putting women specifically into this box or stereotyping who the consumer is, but then also leveraging celebrity to normalize something. And so I'm kind of have this, I'm in the middle of the road. I can kind of be persuaded either way, depending on how you kind of position it to me. And so I'm like, I don't know, we're going towards legalization. And is it good that you have these celebrities? And then, so I can just only imagine being somebody with the experience and the respect that you have accumulated and worked hard for in the industry to then be, again, it's not a degradation to be called Martha Stewart, right? It's Martha Stewart, but how do you leverage that for becoming more Jane West, which I think that you have right. done successfully. And, and Martha, you know, she's going to keep posting Zippo lighters with her or Bic lighters with Snoop right. Dogg. So. Quick break to say thank you to Restart CBD for sponsoring this podcast. Restart CBD is a brand my sisters and I founded in our hometown in Austin, Texas. We operate a retail location as well as an e-commerce store, and you can browse our wide range of CBD products at restartcbd.com. Again, thank you to Restart for allowing me the time and resources to put on To Be Blunt. I hope you'll check them out for your CBD needs. Let's go back to the episode. No, she is great at licensing. It's a lot about like the aesthetic and look and feel that they're trying to put on me with that title. I have actually like studied her business model and actually the inner workings of it because there aren't that many brand name self-made female like business owners. And so, so that on that side, there's, there'd be a lot to talk about as much as I would love to have so many female celebrities coming out and smoking on on their pages just like they do wine over time i just really what's happened in the past okay so when i started the events i couldn't find any pictures of women in dresses Mm. that looked nice smoking weed at all at all there were also less than a hundred people on linkedin who had the word cannabis but today one of the things that does keep me going is if i go online and i type in and i search cannabis influencer or cannabis thing and what i see is page after page of awesome women making great content about a product they love. And there's so much more imagery and there's so much more, so many more people who are building their entire companies and brands around the, the, a a cannabis identity and a cannabis consumer identity. And what's disheartening is that just like, I don't have a blue check on Instagram because I've violated the community conduct codes too many times. These women don't either. And at first I was like, fuck Instagram. If I'm making a brand that needs Instagram, I'm doing something wrong. I don't want to need Instagram. But now over time, and especially when I'm finding individuals like you who are making these like amazing shows and fabulous content and like those, if those women have blue checks, if I had a blue check and I made a comment on your thing, that gives you more credibility. And if you have a blue check and you make comments on things, your comments are up at the top and you try to reach out to celebrities to be on your show and they're more likely to respond to you. And so when you see how much this suppression of cannabis accounts and social media and advertising is really affecting our abilities because you are popular, I am popular, even if Instagram isn't going to give us the blue check. But I think... I worry that this celebrity culture coming into cannabis, all it's, it, it reinforces that, oh, she has a blue check and a million followers. So obviously she's our option. We're on this other side. I'm seeing so much authenticity and education through realistic content about consuming that is being not only not applauded, not only not paid, for, paid but suppressed. And so I know, I know, I know that someday that has to end someday, whether I wish Instagram still wasn't the biggest thing, you know, someday that part, I really look forward to being able to like have people truly get their attention and advertising and marketing that they deserve, you know, behind their cannabis brands. Amen. I look forward to that day. And I think honestly, you being the voice that you are is going to be one of the people who helps influence that. Right. And so I want to talk about Women Grow. It's mm-hmm. it's a very well-known name in the industry. Mm-hmm. What is the parameters of it? Tell me like when you launched it, what was the intention? And then now that it has grown into multi-city, multi-state, 
How big is the Women Grow Network? I mean, I can understand why you created it, right? Because you wanted to give women a platform and opportunity to be connected, to find women who can be successful and be the leaders in the industry and shape the narrative. But more so than that, I think like why from your perspective, are women not currently in those positions? Like why is it a male dominated industry from your perspective? And how do we start to shape that? And as women grow, one of the steps in helping bring attention to that? Well, organizing women, no matter what is one of the steps in my opinion, because I talk about disparity and that's what's happening. There's an obvious inequitable disparity in ownership and licensing, but that goes deeper because this entire playing board is broken. And I've been on all these different playing boards in the past eight years in the SEC and re- regulating money and, you know, raising money and funds. And like that board, you know, those men are organized and they have deep networks of, with access to capital and access to power and access to, you know, their, their colleagues. And because there's a lack of female representation in all those other sectors too, the entire, you know, game board that we've jumped to where like, you know, recently I read that like the majority of board members at cannabis companies came from a finance background. And so, you know, that's what we've created here. And so with women grow, I was trying to just start something different. And I still am. I am still, I still believe that I will get further and eventually do better if I make my own game board and try to work instead of trying to adjust, adapt, or limit myself to fit in some other mold because that's the system where the money is or, you know, where the energy is right now. That was my goal with Women Grow. You know, I had mentioned earlier that I lost my job. I launched the first article about Jane Weston Edible events ran in January of 2014. The first event happened that month. I got fired the next month and the SWAT team showed up in April. By then, the name Jane West was synonymous with all of these different keywords in cannabis because the AP press and, and I, mean, I was sitting in my living room with Harry Smith. So people were reaching out to me, especially in me back then, if you just Googled women weed, I was the top thing. And so I did not know what I was doing. I was a criminal who had just recently been fired from her job. And so I was like, I didn't know how to help people. I spent a couple months trying to help people, trying to be like, okay, maybe this is my new job is helping people and kind of like what these consultancy firms are now in terms of like, what are you doing? You want to get in, get a lit. And so once I went in in trying to help people, I became acutely aware that cannabis legalization would be a local issue. So like, and definitely state-based and I would be more likely to be, and and the networks that we should be creating should be state-based so that your representative, your mayor, you know, how, whatever you need to do to get, what you want to, the product you want to have made, made and accessible in your market and your store and on that street and downtown, you need to have this local network and support and legislation, regulation. And so women were contacting me from all over the world, all over the world. Like, how do I get in the industry? What do I do? And so women grow as a framework for being able to have women get organized. And that to me was how I was creating opportunity because it's one thing to like hold one event for like a women's breakfast, but it's one thing to be calling that like an opportunity to connect with other women. Like I wanted to create opportunity to channel this energy. So I started women grow in Denver and in 20 and I created the logos and I bought all the websites. I did not know what I was doing at all. If there are some things I did that if you could have watched how long it took me to like, just know. And now I'm just like click paste, click paste. But I was like, absolutely no idea what I was doing. I decided to just start it as if I was doing it. And then I'd create the guidebook. So my first event was in August and about a hundred people came. And then I just made a, like a, a guidebook for getting ready for your first event and made all the notes. And then I did it for two and three. And then by the time my third one happened, we had, we just put up a thing on the webpage. It was like, do you want to start a chapter? We had hundreds and hundreds of people. So then we started sorting that. Then I met Jasmine Hub, who has tech, who could operate a computer and uh, she and a hard drive. And she absolutely had this tech skill set. I got on the phone with the C, the C-level people at Women 2.0, which basically was what I wanted to do for Women Grow, just meet on a monthly basis in a local area, talk about a topic that's pertinent to you. 
Also by doing state-based, it helped with defining the audience and the topics because here in Colorado, we could be doing something like making childproof packaging consumer-friendly. And in Pennsylvania, it would be initiative 482. Is it the right thing? Or, you know, like whatever you need. So, and it was also a great way in terms of creating opportunity to give a speaking a slot to people who really were the people who came and spoke at women grow events absolutely were like there to tell us all how it's going to happen, whatever it is. It wasn't, it wasn't a paid panel. It wasn't something that's like linked to a sponsorship. It wasn't one of the bazillion monitor, you know, someone was there to be like, Hey, I'm on the front line and this is what's going on in my opinion. And so within the first year of doing women grow, we started 40 chapters the vast majority of people I only met via phone call and talking them through things and being their access point. And then I held the national conferences and that was, okay. So again, I kept underestimating myself and the energy behind what I was doing. So we started Women Grow. And despite the fact that we were in all these cities, we, we were asked to join a special lobbying event. And we, so we're going to fly to DC and we're like, should we, let's email, we should email people and tell them we're going to see, maybe they'll want to meet us. Maybe we'll plan a happy hour. That's like kind of what we were thinking to meet people. And so we sent it out to everyone that had ever written on Women Grow and 78 women from 12 states came to Washington, DC. All of a sudden we needed like a meeting room. We like, it was massive. And we trained, and then we, you know, started working with lobbyists. We trained them on what to say. We divided them up in all the different like buildings and so lobby days happened, but every time that kept happening, I just scratched the surface and like a waterfall would come <laughs> falling through the room. So after the first year of Women Grow, though, I was like reminded, like, this is not what I started doing. And also like I, to me, Women Grow had to remain so egalitarian and everyone is welcome and it's so accessible and all these things. And, and I also knew at the same time that I wanted to start building things of my own. And that's when I also started getting more opinions that really I should just like work on my own projects and define things the way I want to. And so, yeah, so I worked really closely with Hiller PC out of New York. They're amazing. And they helped me, you know, really form a corporate structure to what I had built and the IP in it. And then basically Women Grow became kind of an employee owned and operated company. And it's now 80% black female owned. And my last day, there was, I was like a grandmothered into a board seat for a year just to like, to have some type of transition and accessibility. But my last day was in 2017. That was the first day I started really building what I'm doing now and trying to find glass partners and trying to actually make something and monetize and commercialize. I mean, I admit that I'm doing the same thing. We're talking about commercialization, but like I am trying to generate value from what I've built in the business sense and, and create a successful company. And I feel like that's really key. That's like one of my main like whys right now, because I feel, just feel like I have to prove that this is possible, that if you make these certain decisions and you really build something that is molded in a way that like without concessions, without diluting that you can succeed in this sector. Yeah. So that's a lot of the reason for my motivation now. <laughs> it's like that, that statement, you are who you are when no one's watching without me necessarily requesting it. I felt like my life became like, what would you do if everyone was watching? And then now more and more, and this goes back to your, your question earlier about speaking out and speaking out for what's right. And whether it's guilt <laughs> or inspiration, I'm just like, no, I have to keep building this this way and prove out this model and build this company with all the people, you know, that I, I want to partner with, no matter what their financial situation is at this point, and know that at some point, like there's enough out there for everyone. There is, it's a plant that grows in the ground. It's not tech, it's a crypto, some cell phones or cars or natural gas or energy, or, you know, it's a plant that grows in the ground and makes your life better. I just hope that we get the accessibility to licensing and opportunity that, you know, we dreamed of at the beginning. It is so remarkable to see the 
power that you have harnessed and cultivated with a little bit of, you know, self doubt of like, I don't know if people are going to, you know, actually like buy into this thing, but it came with like, you know, genuine intention of seeing a community, a culture, an environment that needed some corralling. It needed somebody to help kind of like bring conversations together and to maybe call out areas that needed improvement. And just the last statement you're kind of making, you know, there is so much to go around. Unfortunately, I find the industry is very overly competitive and then especially for women, right? And so to be somebody who is this powerhouse female, you've got this brand name that you're building and doing a beautiful job of extending into media conversations and business opportunities. And you're getting all this exposure and to still be like, no, but we need to help these other women connect with each other, find opportunities, navigate this thing, I think is so important because I personally struggle with it, right? I think we, especially in some maybe newer states, you feel like there is an opportunity. And if there is opportunity, well, it's limited. And and how am I going to have a piece of that? And so it's refreshing and hopeful to hear that there are people out there who are trying to level the playing field. And so I just, I hope listeners can kind of take a little bit of that back into their day-to-day lives and think, what have I been doing? How have I been showing up? Because I think that's another key thing too. You know, At the end of the day, we're unfortunately really only in control of our own bodies. So mm-hmm. what can you say to your point too? You're saying these things, you're doing these things over the years and maybe it's months, years later, people are giving you feedback like, oh, this actually really impacted my life. And now I'm in this you know, different trajectory that I might not have been had I not interacted with you read something that you wrote, you know, watch something that you were part of, been a part of an experience or an event that you created. And like, we need more of that to happen so that the direction of the industry doesn't go in a direction that, you know, you start out kind of in the dawn of Colorado cannabis thinking it is going to be really great. And you're going to see all these women succeed in opportunities. And then to be in 2022, I mean, I think there was a stat that came out probably 2020 beginning of the pandemic. And it was like, more women are in leadership positions in cannabis. And, you know, the most recent update to that is it's declined by a significant amount. And yeah, you're right. And those numbers were always so inflated. I was like, to begin with, right. Then three of these 10 businesses should be women owned and they, and they're not. So, you know, those, and those numbers also come out of the like pay to play. Yeah. So it's like, who's pulling these reports together too. And then who is it, you know, benefiting and obviously it's it's a much deeper conversation for people to start to understand. But my hope is always that they will listen to these conversations that I'm trying to curate and feel compelled to like dig deeper, like ask questions, like get involved. I agree with you. Local is so important. Yes. Federal legalization will make an impact in many areas. Absolutely. But the impact happens at a local level first and foremost. And so I really want to kind of wrap up things a little bit by asking you two final questions. One is, you know, you're talking about going through and you've been sharing so candidly about the journey of building Jane West. One of my tips for people trying to get into the industry and going to these conferences, because you do have to go, even though we're both saying like, they're a little sham and the panels are, is keep asking yourself, is this true? Like in, as you're sitting in the audience, there's so much being defined right now that you should be questioning, like, is this true? Does that have to be that way? Like, how else can I do that? And, you know, secondly, like I became a spotlight got put on me and a microphone literally put it in my face <laughs> over and over again. And so I, that's how like I first developed my voice, but I guarantee you, if you start talking about exactly what you want and start pointing out like how it's not happening and how maybe ways it could happen, especially if you can come to the table with solutions, you will find your audience. Everyone I know that starts speaking out about whatever the thing is, they people hear that, but you have to be like putting it on the radio channel. I worry, and this is what worried me in the beginning, is that the illegality and the the mindset we have about cannabis that we don't even realize we have. We don't even realize. We, every year something else new happens where I'm like, oh, it's true. even I was stereotyping this thing, you know, what, what, you know? And so, cause it's so ingrained in, especially in American culture, especially in my generation with like Nixon in the seventies and then great Nancy Reagan in the eighties and dare. And then freaking cops was the longest running reality show. We just watched the war on drugs play out on every Friday night. And it's like a franchise. It's these stereotypes that I think are ingrained and preventing people from speaking out about just, you know, obvious inequities or licensing or how legalization should be. 
And so that's what I, I just really encourage people to speak out. And when you do, not only will you feel a relief that like this wasn't all in your head and that there are other people there that feel it that way, but also you'll build your audience and your community. I couldn't agree more. And I think it is something that is obviously very uncomfortable to step into because you find in this industry, and I struggle with this. I mean, I still do with the podcast. It's like, am I the thought leader? Am I the the authority on this? I know when we were launching Restart, it was especially here in Texas, we launched in a time where people did not understand like full spectrum versus isolate. And mm-hmm. that conversation was so difficult to have. And if you were isolate anything, like you were bad and it's clearly evolved to where there's minor cannabinoids and people who want to be high and people who don't want to be high. And you can use cannabis in all these different ways. But yes, cannabis historically has been used for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. But the reality of how we see it from a scientific perspective, from a chemistry perspective, from a business perspective, from a consumer perspective, I mean, even just like a health perspective, my fiance and I talk about this a lot too, you know, the implications we always glamorize cannabis, could there perhaps be negative attributes to the industry to the consumption of it? Yes. And it's just like, I think as an industry, we don't want to talk about things that like are not ingrained yes. in us because it's not normal to us. Yes. But when you start to like you're saying, sit in those conversations and just like think critically, ask questions. Is this the way it is because somebody else said so? Or is this the way it is because we all agreed it should be this way? And is there room for me to improve upon it? And, and I love what you were sharing too of have opinions will like bring a solution to the table. And so that's for me where I made a really conscious decision. I don't want to be reactive to regulation and policy. I want to be proactive. So how can I have a seat at the table? What boards can I sit on locally? What organizations can I support? How do I get involved in the actual politics of running a cannabis business in my state that is a direct implication to what opportunities I will and won't have instead of just, oh, well, it's hard and I can't do it. And and it's just, it's there's so much opportunity, but it's how do you want to engage with that opportunity? Yeah. And so I think that you've given a lot of good insight and personal experience to help shape how people can start to make sense of it and start to carve out their own little niche. And so kind of with that, I would love to transition to, mm-hmm. I think when you are dealing with a lot of women in cannabis, there is obviously a lot of camaraderie on one side of the coin, but there's also a lot of competition on the other side of the coin. I think when we want opportunity, also we you know, you want to protect what you're putting out there. It's like, obviously you want to help people pull a seat up to the table, but you also don't want to spill the beans. Like you want to have some proprietary protection. And so just kind of would love to hear from you. Cause I know we were talking before with your trademarks and especially launching all these different brands underneath Jane West, going after women grow assets and all those things that legitimize a business mm-hmm. in an industry that is unfortunately illegitimate in some capacities. <laughs> Like, what is your advice and what it, what do you kind of leverage to give yourself that space where it's like, this is what I own and this is what I know to be true, but also let people, you know, learn from you. It's like a really delicate dance you have to do sometimes. And I know you, you do it. So I'm curious to hear how that has been for you navigating. As I speak to new business owners and, and especially now, like we have to just say, I just have to say that the competition aspect of what we're thinking about when we think about the current market has so much to do with this limited licensing where I know it would be more collaborative and know it would be because that's how it was at the beginning when it was all like, we're all working for it together to get this to legalize. And it really was a united front, you know, and everyone felt like we won. And now when things happen in every single state, people win and people lose. And so, you know, that mentality is like seeped into the sector. And I think that's where a lot of this competition comes in. And I, I know exactly what you're talking about because this happens to me all the time where people and, then, and women that I'm talking about are so are fearful, even telling me of anyone what their ideas or what they're doing because it will be like stolen or taken. I do understand that. But also we have to understand that like this one and done mentality, which is a phrase that I like encourage you to like Google and read about just a little bit about like how there's only one. There's only one woman that can do it, one this, and we're perpetuating that by not being like, no, this is a huge community. And you know what? We are going to be so fucking lucky if a single one of us actually brings this idea to fruition and to be able to do it 
I'm probably going to need all of you. And so like, that's how, I don't know, Women Grow would not have been what it is. And I know it's a different business model. It's not quite the same thing as some other proprietary things. And I try to encourage that to women because one of the things that I hear so much, and this just comes from my social work and counseling background where I like, I kind of hear what people are saying under what they're saying is how much women like count themselves out right away. Yes. They're like, Oh, I, I had this really great idea and I was going to do, you know, this one certain like grinder or something. And then I saw it in a magazine, but that's all it takes for them to think, Oh, somebody already like to discount themselves. And so women are just so much more inclined to do that, that discounting versus multiplying. <laughs> and you can multiply by sharing your ideas and talking about them. And as you talk about it, you develop your pitch, your lexicon, you also, you know, create a network of people. That woman that you think stole your idea or most likely completely coincidentally, the bar is set pretty low around here. And for all the canvas products that seem to be out there, there is a world that is missing. And so, you know, it's most likely that people do just naturally come up with these somewhat similar ideas. Either way, you are going, in my opinion, to blossom and expand and exponentially expand than you could just alone as you share. And so when it comes to have something truly proprietary, yes, I mean, you know, keep it, whether that's like a, a scientific formulation or along those lines, but you know, the second component of this is that most likely your idea is not going to be what you end up doing. But in order to figure that out, you have to talk about it. You have to mold it and you have to shape it and you have to edit it and cut whole things out of it all of a sudden. So, you know, I think that's part of running a successful business. And so I do encourage people to talk about it. You know, for me, I think also talking to others who are trying to build what you want to build in the way you want to build it helps you realize what you have. And that's another thing that I find, especially women in the sector, don't realize how much they have. I just always encourage people to look back at what they've already done to see what they have. We all are like looking at this forward while also in taking this like wave of news every morning, you know, and you should look back at like the shore where you started and remember what you have. And every time I do that, I find a new opportunity. I'm like, nope, I already talked to that person. You know what? I actually already made this. Oh, wait, we already kind of did this. Let's reformulate because that was really good. Any, you know, and you'll find that you can find value in what you're building. Like for me, for instance, and you've talked about this on your podcast, I know the vast majority of cannabis companies have absolutely no federal trademark registrations at all. But I started so early and I am an authentic brand, truly speaking, to the audiences and I needed to protect my, my brand under smokers accessories and coffee and tea and nutritional supplements. And so I do own, I, I do have registered trademarks with the USPTO in about 12 different classes. And in the past three years, we've also applied those registrations to the EU, Canada, and the UK. And that is the end result of taking a look at what I have. What makes me unique? What is different about me? Okay, maybe I, I don't want to be plant touching and I don't have a cultivation and I don't, you know, but I do have all of the necessary components to start an IP portfolio based on trademarks and registrations. That is what is something that I actually can build and it's unique. And so, you know, it's the end result of looking at that and focusing on what you have and how you can multiply it versus the scarcity mentality that is so prevalent around here right now, which is reasonable, but it's not going to get you ahead. It is something to be mindful and aware of, but to not let it hold you back or hinder you from saying it out loud, having the conversation, just to your point too, of being able to extend yourself to be able to go after trademarks, especially in the current climate where they're not being awarded or accepted right now. I'm sure some of those conversations happen because of how you're networking and who you're opening your ideas up and your conversations up to. And, you know, it's no secret too, for me, the podcast has been so rewarding because I'm having conversations with people that are helping me shape and reframe, which is, you know, I think not, it's not secret sauce. Like talking to people (laughs) is not secret, right? But people sometimes like, oh, well, that's interesting. Like, how'd you get that idea? And I'm like, oh, because I, 
I reached out to Jane and I wanted to sit down and have a conversation with her. And now you're enlightening me so much. And so <laughs> it's just, I think people need to realize that the answers and the opportunity is out there, but it's not going to be handed to you. You have to be open-minded and also I think humble enough, which is another acknowledgement that I've really appreciated about you. You are really humble and it really is appreciated because there are so many people out here who want to blow literal fucking smoke. <laughs> and yes. my bullshit meter is like, uh-uh, not here for yeah. it, not having it. Yeah. And so to have people who really truly care about helping others, but also, yeah, I mean, hell yeah, we're all business people. Like we want to, you need to put, you know, food on the table for your kids. <laughs> I would like to have a family one day and have to figure out how to commercialize and make a business out of what we're doing in the industry. But, but yeah, the conversation really obviously too, for the listeners, they always know this. It's how do you look at these challenges, not as closed doors, but as creative opportunities to pivot, to change. Like you were saying earlier too, the idea that you think you have today is going to evolve. And the only way it's going to evolve is by putting it in motion. So allowing for the progression of things to happen for better or worse. Okay. Final question. I love to ask my guests this. What does the future of cannabis look like to you? It can, you know, be as crazy or as realistic as you, you know, project it to be in future is obviously relative too, because some would say we already are in the future of cannabis. I want my crystal ball to be rose colored, (laughs) like rose colored glasses. Okay. So the way I think about the future of cannabis really for, for some reason, I just am very fixated on the twenties. And like, that's why like my new glassware collection is called the twenties collection. And like, this is this new twenties because we're going to look back on this. Like, you know, part of being a futurist is being able to think about how people in the future are going to think about how this all went down and what really happened. And I really do try to think that way when I think about what I'm doing with the brand. Cause I do think if I truly make this a successful company, the decisions I make right now Hopefully people can learn from, hopefully they'll be documented. Hopefully it'll get, you know, when you read these other ways to succeed, that it'll affect the future of cannabis because people will be more emboldened to start their own businesses and not just become an employee and not just try to get a job working, you know, working for someone else. And so, so that does define a lot about what I do. So I do think basically for the next eight years, so I've been doing this for eight years and I've got eight more years until it's 2030. There. I do believe federal legalization of some type will occur between now and then. And I do think that that will change some of the banking systems in place. But at the same time, you know, there's been so many different things that have become so established that are not good for the sector. Those systems have to be broken. We have to, my idealistic self hopes that once we change people's thinking about cannabis. There's one thing about legalization. One thing about, uh, one thing about, oh yeah, I guess there's a dispensary down the road and you're like pointing at it when your tour, when your friends come to visit, you know, beyond all of that. When I real, I try to remember how new this is and that tries to, then I feel good. I feel better because I know like, wow, like in Wisconsin, they don't even have any of this yet. And that's where I'm from, you know, where I'm from. So, okay, we could get that. Right. But that is going to mean that like there is home grow and people want it and it's all cool. And, you know, and the people have more accessibility. And so I want that future. I want that future. That is what's really going to change people's mentality is being able to be close to the plant. And so, yeah, so I try to just remember that this is still the very beginning of the very beginning. And we used to say to people at Women Grow, and I think this was Jasmine's, you know, tagline was that the industry will never be this small again. And that's still true. <laughs> and so hopefully I see another wave of activism coming where at some point, all of these professionals, all the people in all the seats that have been turned down for licenses, that have been told you can't, you can't, you can't, you can't. No, not here. Not At some point, another movement will form in terms of like the freedom to grow this cash crop, the freedom for home grow. Like a true, true legalization in terms of like getting, you know, people's records expunged and things. I hope that's going to happen because every day the new person enters the cannabis sector, that's, boop, that's their little point zero, just like your point zero and my point zero, you know? And I do think there are just realizations you naturally come to over time. And hopefully at some point they'll be, we'll reach this critical mass of individuals who 
feel the same way. And there'll be another wave of cannabis regulation. And hopefully in that wave, we are washing away a lot of the systems that are out there right now. And I really do believe that's possible. I've had conversations with these agricultural students and horticulture students and they're like, they're in their like, they're like 22. <laughs> they're like more than half my age. <laughs> and like, oh, and, and so, so bright eyed. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I'm just like, oh my God, you have 25 years to do what you're doing right now until you even get to me technically in terms of like, time and so that's what brings me back to that like futuristic because people call me a futurist in the sector but that's what brings me back to that mindset it's like okay but 25 years from now that young woman that I just got the phone with is going to be in charge of something around here and so that's what like brings me hope and I do think that like cannabis is for everyone and I do think that it's going to be part of our homes in some way shape or form in almost every American home including hemp, you know, by the end of this decade. And so I look forward to seeing what it looks like then. Love this episode of To Be Blunt? Be sure to visit theshadatarabi.com slash to be blunt for more ways to connect. New episodes come out on Mondays. And for more behind the scenes, follow along on Instagram at theshadatarabi.com. 